As we approach this Sunday, the Sunday between Thanksgiving and the start of the Christmas season, we spent some time, what, what do we put in there? What do we fill in there? And we thought we'd focus on our time with the Lord's Supper, with communion. Part of that is because a lot of times it's been called the Eucharist, which means it's a Thanksgiving. I thought that tied in well. And we thought, we'll just unpack the meaning of communion. And we thought, you know, it's a big thing. It's a big, pretty big thing to unpack communion. There's a lot in there. And as we dove in, we realized that's not it. It's more like this. Um, <clears throat> there's a lot in communion. And so we're not going to attempt to unpack that. Maybe just one box or two. Because there are so many layers. And we're not attempting to go through all those layers this morning. But we want to focus on the bread and the cup. I'll be spending some time here in a moment. We'll talk about what, what we do with remembering Jesus. And then with the cup, Justin's going to focus on uh, that sacrifice and the salvation that comes through his blood. So as we, we take a look at that small little box this morning, uh, we had Zach read uh, from the Matthew account. I want to go back to that, and, and we're going to walk through some of the things I believe that we can do and focus on during our participation in sharing the bread and the cup. So from Matthew 26, here's a part of what Zach read for us. <clears throat> Excuse me. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, that's the Passover, that's part of this, where they were remembering the escape from Egypt through the Exodus. And there's a whole lot in there. And this is when the Jewish people would remember ultimately that death, was required to get them out of Egypt. They had a sacrifice of a lamb, and they put the blood over their doorposts, and that kept the angel of death that came around Egypt from striking their households. But it struck all of their households that did not have the blood. And they remember this and how God delivered them and got them out of slavery and took them to the promised land. So this is that festival. And the disciples came to Jesus and asked, where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? It's a great question because you had to have a place. Jesus' answer is kind of interesting, though. He says, go into the city to a certain man, we don't know who that is, and tell him, the teacher says, my appointed time is near. I don't know if this is someone Jesus spoke to earlier. I don't know if this is supernatural. But the focus is, Jesus is saying, there's a time coming and it's, my time. We're about to do something very different with the Passover. My appointed time is coming, so we've got to celebrate the Passover. I'm going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. Kind of a cryptic message, but they go and do that. So the disciples did as Jesus directed and prepared the Passover. It worked. When Jesus tells you to do something, it usually works. But what I get from this is Jesus had a plan. He was not just wanting to have another Passover meal with his disciples. He was wanting to have a specific Passover meal. He had a place already prepared. Somehow, he had a plan because this was his appointed time. 
it wasn't just any other Passover. It was the one Jesus was going to redirect and change. He had a plan. The next thing we get to, we're going to jump into the Luke account here in Luke 22, 14 and 15. Here is they've gotten into the room and they're having the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his disciples reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom. Not only did Jesus have a plan, Jesus had this desire to be a part of this Passover with his disciples. Because he knew it was not going to be just a regular Passover. He also knew that he was no longer going to be celebrating this with his disciples. So he had a desire to be with his friends. With his spiritual family. To sit down and share a meal. And to remember, yes, God's power through the Exodus. But he also had a desire to redirect it. Because he was going to be talking about a new fulfillment of this Passover. It wasn't a passing moment. It was a desire deep in his heart to celebrate the Passover and to share it with those he loved and cared about to the end. Farther on in Luke, he says this in chapter 19, in verse 19. And he took the bread, gave thanks, and broke it. And he gave it to them, and this is where he went off script. In the Passover meal, this was not what you did with the bread. He says, this is my body. Now, they've heard him talk already before in his life about his body being the bread of life, that he is the bread of life. But it's a whole other thing to apply that to this Passover that they've celebrated for centuries. So he redirects and says, this bread now doesn't symbolize your unleavened bread in your haste to get out of Egypt. It's my body, and it's given for you, and it has a new meaning. Do this in remembrance of me. Instead of remembering the Exodus, he says, you're going to remember me. Because Jesus had a purpose. He had a plan, he had a desire, and then he had a purpose to take this meal and give something to his disciples and to us to remember him. As humans, we're very tactile, and we remember things usually that we see and we experience. That's why Jesus took this and, in a sense, fulfilled the earlier Passover with his own body. He said... His purpose was that we remember him. We are to actively remember him. In the Passover, in the sharing of the meal, there's activity. There's a passing of the bread. There's interaction. And he says, you're to actively remember me when you share in this. Memory is a tough thing for a lot of us, especially as we get older. We need reminders of certain things. I have an iPhone that I can set that beeps at me, and not just an alarm, because that doesn't work enough. 
it tells me what I was supposed to remember at that time. Because we're easily forgetful. We easily forget what Jesus should be in our life. So he said, when you sit down with fellow believers, I want you to actively remember me. Because he knew there's something that happens when we talk about Jesus. When we talk about his life, we talk about him. When we actively remember Jesus, you become more aware of who he is. We've got pictures in our heads of who we think Jesus is often, and, and it's usually pretty close, but it's not quite there except when we actively remember him. When you go through and list out, when you think about the experience of Jesus, it becomes different. We talked uh, at our Wednesday study about remembering and thought about how this is similar in some ways to when you have a funeral meal after the funeral and you gather around with family and with friends. And usually what happens during that time is people are actively remembering the one who has gone on. And it's not just casual. Yeah, they're a good person. They tell stories. They talk about good times. They talk about bad times. And they share joy and they share tears. It's an active remembrance. Do you remember when they said this? Do you remember when they did this? That's what Jesus is calling his disciples. That's what he's calling us to do, is to actively remember him, to remember his life as a whole, to remember his teaching, the things he said when he pointed out, you've heard it said, but I tell you. It's to remember his actions when he stood in the way of those wanting to stone a woman that was guilty, but he brought grace. When he gathered children and said, no, let them sit in my lap because the children understand what the kingdom is supposed to be like. It's remembering those things. It's remembering his love, how he cared for everyone he came in contact with, how his love was evident how he lived that out. To actively remember these things about Jesus. Not just a casual remembrance, but an active remembering of walking through his life. Recounting his teachings. Talking about things he did. That's what he was calling his disciples to. That's what he calls us to. Because Jesus understood this. We've got to actively remember him. Because when we actively remember Jesus... You become more aware of who you are. It's about focusing on Jesus, but also what that means for us as believers, as followers. What that's supposed to do in our life. When we actively remember those things, his life, his teachings, his actions. We become aware of who we are. That our life is to be through him. That we are supposed to live through him. Not through our own power, but through Jesus. As we remember his life going, are we doing that? We're supposed to actively remember that and then our words are supposed to point to him. As we examine Jesus, we realize we should have the words of Jesus when we interact with others. We should have that same attitude that he had. That same tone when dealing with people. 
and sharing. Definitely realize that our actions are part of this. Our actions should mirror His. As you actively remember the things that Jesus did, said in His life, it gives you a clear picture to model your life on. We never hit that perfection. But just because you can't have perfection doesn't mean you don't move towards modeling and mirroring everything Jesus did and said. And especially to remember His love because He first loved us. That He gave this body to us. He said, remember that I love you. The only reason that we can love others is because He first loved us. As he shared with his disciples in this last evening with him, he called them to live out this love amongst themselves and in the world. He said, that's how they'll know you're my follower. It's because you're showing his kind of love in your life. You're actively living it out. You're remembering him. So how do you do this? Well, one really great way to do it is we have these things called the Gospels. They're accounts of Jesus' life. They're all varied. They have different aspects. And you can spend time in those. But the idea of remembering Jesus, we can do that now. And we're going to in just a moment as we look at texts that tell the story. But the idea is to be ready to remember Jesus when you show up to commune together. Spending time in the Gospels, spending time reading the story, hearing the words that Jesus said, seeing the actions he took. We come, we're supposed to come ready to remember Jesus. We're not supposed to cram right now as the last-minute test. We're supposed to come ready to remember. When you prepare for a funeral, you come ready to remember the person. You don't come and cram right there before. Jesus said, remember me because you've been remembering me throughout your week. When we do that, we're able to get that clearer picture of Jesus and who we are in relation to him. So my challenge this morning is when we're going to, I'm going to say a prayer here in a bit, and we're going to partake together of the bread is to remember Jesus to remember his life I'm going to pray there'll be some time of silence for you to reflect and then a song's going to play and here's what I am going to ask you to do during that is to reflect on your Jesus memory if you need to go in open the gospels up Matthew Mark Luke John right there in your Bible go to that story to remember Something Jesus said, something Jesus did. And focus on that. How does that shape your life? And I'm going to let you talk in church today if you want to. If you're comfortable, after you go to that, if you're comfortable with those around you, uh, as that song plays, share that memory. Share why that's an important memory of Jesus and how it shapes your life. And we're going to remember as we share in the bread that Jesus 
is our example. We're going to remember his life and his words and let that pour over us as we remember him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you knew we were forgetful people and that we needed reminders of your son. So, Father, I pray as we share in this bread together that we will be able to remember the things he did and the things he said. And, Father, not just remember them uh, as nostalgia, Father, but to remember them as life-shaping things for us today. Father, help us remember Jesus so we can live out his call to be like him in this world. We pray this in his name. Amen. Before we share the cup together, I want us to put ourselves in the shoes of Peter and the way he experienced the Last Supper and the final days leading up to uh, Jesus' final days on earth. So, put yourself in Peter's shoes for a second. Imagine yourself reclining at the table with Jesus during the Last Supper. You shared the Passover meal. You knew it was special, as were all your experiences with Jesus. But the full meaning of this wasn't quite clear yet. It was a meal that had always reminded God's people of the freedom he had delivered them into long ago coming out of Egypt. You had spent three transformative years with Jesus. You left everything to follow him. You stepped out of the boat and walked on water by Jesus' power. You confessed him as the Messiah boldly when other disciples just said who others thought he was and made speculations. And you were there when Jesus was transfigured and identified as the Son of God by God on the holy mountain. In many ways, if you were Peter, you'd be considered a successful disciple of Christ and a leader that was at the top of your class. And so candles illuminated the upper room while you shared this meal, a meal that reminded you of the freedom God brought his people into, a meal that reminded you of the slavery that God brought your people out of when they couldn't have been freed by any other means. But during this meal, Jesus makes an intimidating prediction. He says, truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. Your heart pounds as you wonder if it would be you, if you would mess up that way. And one after the other, you and the other disciples nervously question if it would be you. But it wasn't you. And in relief, you leave with Jesus for the Mount of Olives. There Jesus quotes Zechariah 13 in another haunting prediction that you would all fall away on account of him. And in proper character, you respond that you'll never fall away, even if everyone else does, only for Jesus to reply that you disown him three times before the sun even came up. You go with Jesus to the Garden of Gethsemane but fall asleep with the other disciples while Jesus prays, failing to keep watch as he has asked you. Shortly after, Jesus is arrested, and he's unfairly tried. 
And during the trial, while you sit nearby in the courtyard, a servant girl states that you were with Jesus, but you deny it. Another servant girl also recognizes that you've been with Jesus, and you can't believe your own mouth as you adamantly deny being with Jesus a second time. Shortly after, those standing nearby recognize your accent and confidently claim that you are a disciple of Jesus. A third and final time, you exclaim that you don't know him. A rooster crows. In grief and in shame, you go outside to weep. After all the miracles you had seen, after all the transforming power of Jesus that you had experienced, after being invited into the inner circle of Jesus' followers, a friend of Jesus, and a dedicated follower, your relationship with Christ culminates with a shameful disowning. The words you had uttered ring again and again as you long to undo what you had said. Jesus goes on to be sentenced to death, and you weren't there for him. He was alone. He was mocked alone. He was tortured alone. And while on the cross, darkness covers the whole land, and it feels like the world is ending, and you fear that some of your last words were the disowning of Jesus. And Jesus dies. And for three days, countless things go through your mind, from grief to questions. It's hard to make sense of everything on top of your ongoing shame. To add to the whirlwind of emotions, on the first day of the week, Mary finds you and delivers the news that somebody took the body of Jesus from the tomb. They stole him. And that evening, behind locked doors, you're hiding with the other disciples for fear of the Jewish leaders in this mess that it has become. Suddenly, Jesus is in the room with you. And he says, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I'm sending you... And he breathed on them, he breathed on you, and he says, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you don't forgive their sins, they are not forgiven. What would you have been thinking if you were Peter? There wasn't any closure since your three denials. Jesus had died, and now he's there again, alive, commanding that you go and forgive people. But surely he wasn't unaware of your denying him. Shortly after this, you're fishing at the Sea of Galilee. And you can't help but remember that this is where the whole journey had begun. A three short years before you were working here, you were fishing when Jesus called you to follow him. Someone on the shore calls out asking if you've caught any fish, and you hadn't. And they say, throw your net on the right side of the boat. You do this and catch so many fish that you can't pull them in. And in excitement, John realizes that it's Jesus on shore. And in your own excitement, you jump in and swim to Jesus. There, a fire is burning and Jesus makes breakfast. Perhaps by now your nerves are more calm. The regret and the pain of denying Jesus may have been overcome by the simple peace of being in his presence again. Jesus asks you if you love him, to which you reply, you know that I love you. He asks again, do you love me? You reply the same, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. A third time he asks, do you love me? And it hurts this time. 
These three questions painfully remind you of your three denials. You had failed Jesus then, and here he asks you three times if you love him. And Jesus replies, feed my sheep. It was as simple as that. It wasn't because of your credentials or the history you had with Jesus or being in the inner circle. Nothing you had done had earned your relationship with him. And on the other hand, your denial hadn't severed that relationship either. It wasn't the end of the story like you had thought. Surely many times throughout your life you remember the words of Jesus from that last supper when he gave you the cup. He says, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Our forgiveness, our relationship with God, is bought by the blood of Jesus and nothing else. So today, as the people of God, forgiven by nothing short of his blood, we're going to share that cup together and give thanks because he has forgiven us. Let's pray together. Thank you, Father, for Jesus, and thank you for your gracious love and mercy. And please keep our eyes fixed on the one who has saved us and who continues to make us new every day. Please fill us with your spirit and change our hearts. Help us to forgive others the way you've forgiven us and help us to love the way that you've loved us. And please free us from our bondage and help us to rejoice always because you're our God and you're our people. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.